discovery is said to be an accident meeting a prepared mind. But every story behind a discovery is different. Perhaps the idea is conceived in a light bulb moment or a brainstorming session or captured in scribblings on the back of a napkin. Here, we introduce you to scientific pioneers taking you beyond their publication and into Innovation Corner to hear the untold stories behind their discoveries. This podcast is brought to you by Biotechni, and I'm your host, Alex Maloney. Hello and welcome to the first episode of season two of Back of the Napkin. It is great to be able to bring you a whole new season of this podcast. Thank you for your support and feedback. It's been instrumental in driving this new season forward. And I actually got to hop on a plane recently and take a trip over to Boston to record with some fantastic guests for this new season. And one of those you're going to listen to today. So let me introduce our first guest, Professor Laura Kiesling. Laura is a Novartis professor of chemistry at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. She's authored over 140 peer-reviewed papers, is an inventor on more than 28 US patents, and has been one of the drivers in accelerating this area of chemical biology. Laura is in fact the founding editor of ACS Chemical Biology, a fantastic journal that certainly occupies a lot of my reading time. She even has the OG Twitter or X handle at Chemical Biology. Make sure to give her a follow. Laura's research interests broadly fall under the field of glycoscience. This is the study of carbohydrates and how glycans, composed of sugars, interact with proteins and other molecules. Specifically, Laura's work has focused on cell surface glycans. And we talk about this in the episode, but if you think of a cell as a peanut M&M, the cell surface glycans are the sugary coating on the outside of these. And how they are involved in immunity and development has been fundamental in Laura's research. Laura's interests in sugars also extend to infectious diseases and how these sugars are involved in infection or can even be developed as diagnostic tools. We speak about a lot in this episode from Laura's impressive art collection in her office through her time in science, her discoveries in the areas I've mentioned and importantly we land on the topic of women in science. Laura is not only a proponent but a role model for women in science, advocating for equal representation, mentorship and recognition. She reveals some very honest insights into what it's been like being a woman in science and I feel very privileged that we were able to discuss these and to use this podcast to call out the norms that have made it so difficult for women pursuing a career in science. After we hit finish on the episode I was lucky enough to get a guided tour of MIT which was very surreal. I got to see the infinite corridor, the outfinite corridor, rub George Eastman's nose for luck and you know what I actually got upgraded on my flight later that day so thank you George. Laura told me some more about her background on the tour as well she didn't get the fast start in life that many in her position have had and she had a very humble upbringing which adds an extra layer of impressiveness to what she has achieved and created so let's get into it 
Welcome to Back of the Napkin. Hi, Laura. Welcome to Back of the Napkin. Thank you so much for having me here in your fantastic office at MIT. Oh, thanks for the invitation to join you. So, Laura, you actually won an award already, which is the most requested guest for this podcast. So it is a real privilege to to actually have you here on the podcast. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea. (laughs) So we were talking about before we started, but your office is amazing. There's so much amazing artwork scattered around this room. Tell me about tell me about this. Do you collect this? Uh, I really like art. And um, yeah, this these are all pieces that I, I guess they're eclectic. They're things that I just ran into. But I was at UW-Madison for a long time, and they have a really great printmaking mm-hmm. school. And so uh, a lot of the art uh, I first encountered there. So you can see I have an abstract periodic table. That's the one that caught my eye first. I yeah. love it. <laughs> yeah. And then um, this is, I have this chemistry Lichtenstein. Wow. So um, I love it. There's a test tube and there's some Erlenmeyer's. Yeah. And then I have a lot of fossils. I like them too. I I, I was in, when I was a grad student, uh, I, I, I come from a, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. And when I was a grad student, I was very poor. Um, and I, but I was in New York City visiting a friend and I saw you could buy a fossil for like $25 that was from, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. Wow. And I just thought, what a bargain. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a, like a great investment. Right? Ex- I don't know if it's an investment. I just thought it was so cool. You could buy yeah. something that was so old. and That's amazing. Yeah, you can have a little piece of history in your... Exactly. Uh, yeah. So let's go back. Tell me about growing up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a very small town in Wisconsin, um, Lake Mills. And when I grew up there, it had less than 3,000 people. Uh, So my class, I think, had a... It was the biggest class ever at my school. It had 100 people in it. Wow. And what piqued your interest in science? How did you get into science? I don't know if I was really... I, well, I liked math when I was growing up. Um, I Again, you know, a lot of things that we did were not as oriented towards scholastic excellence in any way. I think I, I remember uh, being camping and my mom waking me up at four in the morning to watch a Luna moth hatch. Wow. Uh, outside of our tent. I wasn't very psyched at the time, but it was... <laughs> beautiful and i i did a lot of things like that we i had a backyard that uh emptied that was right near this pond and my brother and i would catch tadpoles in a bucket and um keep them for a long time and watch them grow up and we we left them at my grandmother's house during vacation um, in an unfortunate time where they all grew legs and hopped out of the bucket and my <laughs> grandmother woke up to find like all these little tree toads hopping around her kitchen she was not psyched to take care of our pets after that yeah so a real fascination with nature i guess nature and then um yeah and then i started 
I mean, I took all the science classes because someone told me, you know, if you like math, maybe you will like science or engineering. And, but I, to be honest, I mean, I loved my high school chemistry teachers, but I did not like high school chemistry. So I never thought it was anything that I would end up doing per se. So what happened next then? Uh, I started at the University of Wisconsin and I uh, was, I I took all the science classes um, because someone told me, if you want to go to medical school, you need these science classes. And I didn't really think I wanted to go to medical school, but I thought, well, I don't know what I want to do, so I shouldn't close doors. So I took the chemistry class, you know, all the math classes, which I really liked. Um, But my chemistry class, I was doing uh, very, like, mediocrely. And I was getting C's, you know, but as the class progressed, I got, you know, more interested in it and did a little bit better. And I liked my professor. And so, but it was a class of, I I don't know, 200 people. And so at the end of it, I went to pick up my final and my professor, I, I think I knocked on the door about that. Like he said, is someone there? <laughs> and I, I went in and he said, oh, hi, Laura. And I thought, how can he even know my name? There's so many people in this class. And then he said, um, I think you did the best in the class. And I said, I think you have me confused with somebody else. <laughs> and he said, no, here it is right on top. And I then just blurted out, like, do people ever do research in chemistry? Like, could I work in your lab? And he said, yes. And so that's how I thought maybe I'd be interested in chemistry. Wow. Okay. So, th- and then next, like, how did this continue? Oh, uh, so next... Um, so my really good friend uh, at UW-Madison had a sister who went to MIT. Uh-huh. And you know how normal people go on spring break, yeah. like to Florida? Yeah. I went to Boston you came to for Boston. spring <laughs> <laughs> And I, I didn't have money, so I took a train. It was 20 hours on a train. <laughs> it was being unheard of, right? Exactly. <laughs> Um, and then we uh, got to Boston and um, I met, so my friend's sister, Heidi, lived in this dorm at MIT that had all of these women that were doing science. And I had been in this in these classes at UW-Madison that were huge, but there were not actually a lot of women in my high-level science classes. So... I was listening to all of these women who were talking about the amazing things that they were doing. And then I went to some of the classes and I just thought it was really exciting. And at the same time, I visited another school that's, you know, around here, but I didn't go to the high level classes there. I was only going to the kind of general classes. So I just decided maybe I'll transfer here. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the admissions office and said, um, I think I'm interested in transferring here. Can I have an interview? And they said, have you applied? And I said, no. 
And they said, have you, well, what, have you taken the SAT? What were your SAT scores? And I said, no, because you didn't have to do that to go to Wisconsin at the time. And so they said, I'm sorry, you can't have an interview. But I had met someone who worked in the office, the interview office, and she got me an interview. Wow. And so I spent the whole time saying why I thought MIT was better than other schools I visited, which made it sound like I was considering other schools, but I really was not. So then I just applied and got in and came here. You had such a great spring break here. (laughs) (laughs) That does sound like a good spring break. But it also just seems a little like uh, random, right? I just kind of saw these potential opportunities. I don't know what prompted me to ask those questions. And then when you got in, was it what you expected? It was more. Uh It was more than I expected. I I guess um, I was so nervous about coming here because I felt like I came from a small town and all of these, a lot of the people I'd gone to really you know, high-powered high schools, and I felt like I would, they would, you know, I I wouldn't be able to hold my own. But I thought at the time, you know, if I get C's here with these amazing people, that'd be fine. And um, so what happened was I found how uh, how actually kind the other students were and how much fun it was to be with all these people that, uh, also loved science and engineering. So you had a great foothold in science then and something you wanted to, to stay in. And you then moved to Yale, is that right, to do mm-hmm. PhD? Yeah, and one other thing I should say about um, MIT is I joined the rowing team. Uh, um, I have to say uh, lessons in chemistry. I'm reading that at the moment. Oh. It is fantastic. It's so yeah. great. It's (laughs) it's funny, and but the woman in the book loves chemistry and loves rowing, Mm. so that was very. uh, I had a I had a good synergy with that book. You don't have a dog called Six Thirty. I I don't. No dog called Six Thirty. That is a fantastic book, and I think we're going to have to leave a a link in the description to that and encourage people to read it because I am really enjoying that. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Yeah, so I I. I actually loved rowing so much um, and chemistry, and then I decided that I should maybe focus on chemistry rather than uh, yeah. rowing. <laughs> you can do both, I guess. Yes, yes, yeah. but that's my primary yeah. career. You're going to be a chemist, not a yeah. professional rower. Right, got you. Yeah, so uh, I went to Yale because I met this... Uh, so I, I went to Yale when I visited... Um, I met Stuart Schreiber, mm-hmm. who was a pretty young scientist at the time and so dynamic. And I also met people like Sam Danishevsky, who were really iconic. And I just thought it was an exciting place. So I chose that. Mm. And what were you working on? What were you doing in your PhD? I worked on a natural product called uh, calichiamycin, uh-huh. and it is a really... Uh, cool natural product it um has a kind of trigger on it so it's stable 
but when it gets reduced in a cell, it um, generates a free thiolate that does a reaction, cyclizes, and then the natural product um, generates a a dye radical. Sorry for this, all the no, scientific. No, this good, yeah. It generates a dye radical that then um, abstracts hydrogen atoms from DNA, and it leads to DNA cleavage. Mm-hmm. And so it's a beautiful molecule. And what was so cool is Bob Bergman had figured out that molecules like that could cyclize, form dye radicals, and um, do reactions. And he did that not knowing that they ever existed in nature. Wow. And so I worked on um, building the enediene core uh-huh. of this molecule. Um, but yeah, my whole, at Yale, um, there were these seeds planted. Uh, so my whole research program now is based on an ar- argument I had in grad school. Which was? We were... So this beautiful natural product has these weird sugars on it. And I thought that maybe the sugars had something to do with DNA recognition, that they were facilitating the binding. And other people in the lab just thought they were maybe there for solubility and other reasons, transport, things like that. And so we had an argument. It wasn't a big argument. It was like the kind of great interactions you have in grad school where you're sort of saying, I think this and somebody else thinks that and you talk it all through. But it made me think that we really don't know that much about what carbohydrates do. Interesting. So you then take a faculty position at... Wait, can I just say though that I was right? Those guys were right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When did you figure out you were right? I didn't figure it out. Other people, Dan Kahn and Sam Danishevsky, figured out that those sugars really contribute to binding. Did someone call you up and say, hey, Laura, you were were right? (laughs) No. You just saw the paper, you're like, I was right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you then take a faculty position at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, wait, you forgot Caltech. Oh, Caltech. Sorry, of course. A postdoc at Caltech. Tell me about. Tell me about. Yeah. That. So I. I mean, it makes if you think about the DNA part, mm-hmm. it makes total sense that I would go and work with Peter Durvin uh-huh. at Caltech, and so he was developing strategies at, to bind to DNA and then cleave it or identify the binding site in different ways. Yeah. And so that was a really exciting time, too, to be there with all the people at Caltech. Another formative part of my career. Yeah. Okay. Right. And okay. And then after that, then, is when you take the faculty position. Exactly. Um, so what was the thought then? What were you going to, you know, you want to start your own group? What What was the thought? Yeah. So I had three projects. Um, two were nucleic acid mm-hmm. focused. And one was on carbohydrates. Uh-huh. And I think what happened is, um, so we started all of them, but the carbohydrate research really took off. And it was, it was, uh, I, I was in, again, kind of intrigued by this idea that we didn't really understand the biological roles of carbohydrates and that someone who was trained in chemistry could help with, you know, help fill that gap of knowledge. Mm. There's that great Emil Fisher quote. Do you know the one I'm going to say? 
Go for it. So he says, you know, we now hope to understand proteins as well as we do carbohydrates in 1902 after he won the Nobel Prize. What would you say to him now? I would say, so first of all, Emil Fisher is one of my heroes. Yeah. He it, he was an amazing person because, you know, not only was he thinking about how to use chemistry to probe biology, but also he really supported young people. He gave a bunch of money to support the careers of young people, which I thought was amazing. But um, he was prescient in many ways, but he didn't know that carbohydrates weren't obviously encoded in the genome, mm -hmm. right? So that's why he thought that proteins were harder to study uh, than carbohydrates. So I would, I would tell him, yeah, you, you, that, that um, what's been exciting is that now we're at the stage where we can start to make major impacts on carbohydrates. And so, yeah, he, he had a lot to learn. We all do. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Laura. So tell me more now about the work that you guys are doing here, how your work is built out, what you're looking at. Uh, for, uh, we work on several different aspects of, of carbohydrates. So I'm interested in uh, how they're built how to image them. And um, the other thing that I'm very interested in is how, how they're recognized, especially by human proteins. Mm -hmm. So we have over 200 human proteins whose job it is to, I mean, they're, they're classified as lectins or carbohydrate binding proteins. And we don't know that much about what they specifically bind what cells they're recognizing and how they're functioning so you were co-opting proteins with catalytic activity back in the 90s way before things like protax were cool tell me about tell me about this work oh yeah so oh thanks for <laughs> thanks for bringing that up yeah uh, we were very interested um and we're still interested in um, the role of multivalency in protein-carbohydrate interactions. So carbohydrate interactions with proteins really differ from traditional interactions in drug development. Mm -hmm. Many of those interactions are very tight binders, and we're looking for tight-binding ligands or drugs. But protein-carbohydrate interactions are made to be weak because they take place often on the outside of the cell, and so they really use multivalency, multiple versions of these weak interactions. Um, people liken them to Velcro, although I don't love that analogy because Velcro is not so specific. Mm. But um, yeah, you have a matched pair that has to come together, but you have many copies. And so we, one of the uh, things we were interested in at the time is inflammation. And uh, that's a uh, I mean, we need obviously new anti-inflammatories. And so we had made these really, uh, these molecules, we were making polymers that display these carbohydrates in really defined ways. And then we took these materials and we wanted to inhibit a cell-cell interaction. But what we found is that the materials were unbelievably potent, like more potent than you would 
predict from just inhibition mm-hmm. of cell cell recognition and it was um you know by competition and it they were so potent because they were catalytically activating cell surface proteolysis so they were removing the target protein from the surface of the cell wow so i i think it was a you know i i haven't looked up like what's the earliest version of a catalytic drug but it was a drug that caused proteolytic degradation of its target really cool really cool and you're also looking at um how carbohydrates are involved in uh, infectious diseases as well so for mycobacterium tuberculosis tell me tell me about this work you're doing yeah there we've been interested in um both inhibiting one thing that i think about in um in uh, antibiotic discovery that hasn't really been mined is the opportunity to block a lot of pathways that involve uh, glycan synthesis. And there are some, and, and bacteria use a totally different set of building blocks than we use. And so uh, mycobacteria use galactofurinose. Uh-huh. We never use galactofurinose. That's the five-membered ring form of galactose. We always use the six-membered ring form. And so all of the enzymes that do that, we thought would be interesting targets for uh, intervention. So we did some work trying to inhibit those enzymes. We are still working on that. And we also have uh, been really interested in imaging how bacteria build their coat, both to uh, come up with new sorts of screens to find inhibitors and also to just uh, for diagnostic purposes yeah. and for fundamental science to yeah. really understand um, how things are built and organized. I was just in South Africa wow. where we brought some of our compounds down. Um, and I say we, but really one of my graduate students came with me and we were interacting um, with researchers there that work on primary TB cases. TB is endemic there and really such a devastating disease. How was that? Like, what was it like it being was, there and actually seeing, you know, being able to do something almost in real time? It was amazing. It was very, it was really exciting. Um, they, I mean, they have, they took us to visit just a hospital with state-of-the-art, you know, everything, proteomics, genomics, etc. Yeah. But then, we also went to a TB hospital where many of the patients are seen and treated. And so the, the South Africa, it was a study in contrasts. Um, the, the place where people were being treated was very modest. Um, they were doing beautiful science, but yeah. Yeah, you feel, uh, you feel fortunate that you have a lot of the resources you do when you visit uh, places that are doing such important work but are resource poor. It sounds really amazing, Laura. And you know, coming back to the point you said earlier about you know working on developing these tools that can help researchers continue to do great work. Here, I think expanding that toolbox and the work you do to create these tools is is amazing. Okay, I want to come on to the next section of this podcast, which I've titled Innovation, Ideation, and Collaboration. I think these are some really um, 
fundamental and exciting things about science. So let me ask you about your creativity process and how you um, kind of share that with your group and encourage that within your group. That's a good question. I I think one of the things that I try to do is uh, encourage people in my group to think broadly beyond their own research. And I, I, I just think about my own research. When I was at Caltech, I went to talks from Bob Grubbs. Uh-huh. And Bob was, you know, making these polymers using these catalysts. And uh, I just thought, you know, this seems like a great way to make bioactive polymers. And that's not what he was doing. He was using them as materials. And then, you know, that led us to think, oh, these polymers can mimic the features of um, proteins called mucins Mm -hmm. that make up our mucus. And that's how we ended up making the compound that promoted the proteolytic cleavage of Mm. things off of the surface. So if I... Rump. Rump, yeah. yeah, The ring opening metathesis polymerization. So if I never went to a seminar on polymerization chemistry and organometallics, which had nothing to do with my own research on small molecules and nucleic acids, yeah, I I wouldn't have gone in that direction. And so I think it's fun to try new things and think about things beyond um, where your traditional training might be. So I try to encourage my lab to do that. Uh-huh. And collaboration. Tell me about the importance of collaboration. How important is collaboration in what you do now? We have so many collaborators. Uh, I think coming to this area, Cambridge, this ecosystem, it's like being a kid in a candy store. There are so many uh fantastic scientists that are doing things that you can start to mix and match ideas and see uh, new ways of studying nature that, you know, wouldn't occur to you if you hadn't seen all these other great, uh, all the other great science that's going around you. Yeah. So you touched on the point there, coming back to MIT. So this was 2017. Yeah. Is that right? How did that happen? Um, so I love Wisconsin. Yeah. And um, I had grown up there. Uh, but the, uh, and and I, and I think it's so important to support public education. But the, there was a lot of uh, stress at the time because um, there was a kind of, it, it, it's, it's sometimes hard to get the legislature on your side. And so if you work at a land-grant university, there are always kind of political things. And so that led my husband and I, who's also a scientist, to think about um, other options. And then uh, MIT called. And spring break was back on. Spring break, yeah. (laughs) Spring break. Very good, very good. Laura, so you're also the editor in chief of ACS. Oh, no more. I used to be. Ah, I'm the. Okay. I was. I founded the journal, yeah. but now it's in other hands. Ah, okay. Um, 
what year did you found this journal? Oh, because this um, is a key milestone in you know what we now call chemical biology, right? Oh, Something I want to speak more about uh, chemical biology and how these kind of two disciplines have now come together. Yeah, so uh, I think that so there were. So initially, and I think this still happens, if you're bridging fields, Uh um, when you go to a lot of traditional journals or even general journals, you always get reviewers that come from, that have a particular lens on a project. And so, for example... Uh, often, you know, if your work is is reviewed by only people in the biological sector, they don't understand that making compounds is actually not straightforward and vice versa, right? Yeah. So if, if people only make compounds, they might not find your compounds the most exciting to have made. So I thought that we needed a place to be able to publish this kind of interdisciplinary work where there would be people that were trained in an interdisciplinary way to review the papers. And and at the time, there weren't a lot of options for that. And the other thing that I thought is that it's really valuable to have. So um, there's at the time, there was a lot of emphasis on open access, and there's, there still is. And, you know, rightly so, research should be available but I think there hasn't been the same emphasis on um, on society journals. So I think it's really valuable when societies have journals in particular areas because our scientific societies, you know, they have they interact with people in Congress. They yeah. can help advocate for science and help explain science. And uh, private publishers don't have that obligation, typically. And so I think that, uh, so researchers out there, please consider sending your, even your most impactful work to these society-based journals, because the societies really do help us as investigators. It's like reinvesting in ourselves. And so that made me really want to start a, an interdisciplinary journal. And at the same time, um, Nature Chemical Biology came out right before us. And that is just a fantastic journal. So we uh, tried to do some different things in, in terms of starting things up. And one of my, my main things was to try to build community and to try to support young investigators. Because whenever you're submitting your first papers... Uh, people don't know who you are and they don't know necessarily, I don't know, they might not have heard your take on the world or they might not give you as much credit as they would give someone that they're more familiar with. So I wanted a place where they wouldn't struggle to publish their beautiful work. It's a fantastic journal. I love reading. I'm often, like, I'd say daily, I'm hitting the ASAPs on. Oh, ACS that's so awesome. <laughs> because there's just so much great work that gets done there. These sort of, as you say, these new investigators, it's like, you know, you read the titles and just every title I want to kind of click on and learn more about it. It oh, really is fantastic. Great. Okay. So what does the future of chemical biology look like to you? And I'm maybe kind of going to preface this this question. Um, 
I am being back in in Boston here. I have been here for the week, and I saw there was an event called Chem Bio in the pub. Like, where else can you get an event where right a hundred people uh, from almost as many different organisations and institutes come together to sort of speak about chemical biology, and you have this great interaction, which is like, you know, you figure out what someone's background is, and then you kind of make a joke of how you know you have the opposite background, but these two disciplines are brought together. Um, but there's such fantastic work that happens now in chemical biology. So what do you think the future holds for, for chemical biology? I, I think one thing, I, so uh, I, I, I'm not maybe, I'm not always good at making future uh, guesses, but I will say that one thing I've seen just from being the editor-in-chief of, of that journal is just how the field has evolved. It's it's amazing in terms of its current sophistication compared to where it was. Mm. And I think that there are so many enabling tools that people are developing. But I think early on it was, uh, it might have been a bit tool focused. And now it's way beyond that. You know, people are just studying a lot of fundamental questions, you know, using the tools they've developed, bringing and bridging new tools. I, I think it's it, it just keeps getting more exciting. It's accelerating so much. So I don't know where it's going to go, mm-hmm. but I can say wherever that is, it's going to be fast. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. You know, to see all the people that turned up to this this event, specifically for chemical biology, was, was great to see. And there's such great conversations that were had. You know, people, I think the amount of ideas that are, coming together in the field are, yeah, make it so exciting. Well, and one thing I love about it, and I think this is um, part of why I find it so exciting, I I think um, in the biological sciences, you know, there's a lot of deep knowledge in various areas, and people studying transcription often will go to transcription meetings, whereas people studying, I don't know, ubiquitilation will go to those meetings mm-hmm. and then um there there i don't want to say there's no cross discipline there is a lot but the great thing about chemical biology is you can go to a meeting and one minute you know you're learning about a developmental pathway or you're learning about cancer or you're learning about the microbiome or you're learning about infectious disease and so it's such an exciting place because you can take ideas from other fields. And I think that makes it different than a lot of fields. I agree. I agree. I'm enormously excited to see what happens in the field. And yeah, going to keep hitting those ASAP articles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Okay, Laura. So the next part of the podcast I want to come to is um, women in science and you know you're a huge proponent for women in science and and have done a huge amount for women in science and one of the things that you know I want to talk to you about here is this initiative that is being held at the ACS spring uh, meeting March 17 to 21 uh, for the Chemistry and Chemical Glycobiology, uh, the Division for Carbohydrate Chemistry and Chemical Biology um, for Women in Carb. So tell me a little bit 
about this. You're speaking at this event. So I want to hear about the great work that women in Carb are doing. Oh, there's so many people doing such exciting things. I, I was uh, really happy that they put together this group. So I, I, I think that um, the session is really going to run the gamut from people studying the roles of carbohydrates in, you know, us, mammalian systems, things like their role in neuroscience, um, their, their role in development and cancer. And then there are people studying their role in infectious disease and the microbiome. And uh, the, the series has people that are early on in their careers, people that are more senior in their careers. So it should be a really exciting uh, event. I've heard you talk about reaching a critical mass of women in science to uh, help promote women in science. How do you, do you think we've nearly reached a critical mass? Do you think we're going in the right direction? I think it's getting better. And I, I think, um, I, I do, I think it's, I think it's going in the right direction. You know, I, I think about when, when I started as a faculty member, um, before I started my own lab, I only knew, I think I'm trying to think, I think I'd only seen three or four women scientists ever give talks. Uh And so that's, now you can have that many, you know, in your area, but you know, until we're 50, 50, we're not there. Right. We, that's what it should be. So I, I think we still have a ways to go, but, um, I, it's, what one I, I there's an award from the ACS that's um, a kind of women in science award and and I won it um, one year and one of one of my uh, male colleagues who's a, an amazing person who I really uh, admire greatly senior person said to me you know it's so great you won that award but you know you should just win an award for being a great scientist, not for being a great woman scientist. And I said, but the other women scientists that could have been nominated for this award are so amazing. I'm very proud of it. Like it it wasn't, it wasn't like any consolation prize to win that because there are so many women that are so good. Yeah. And talk to me about kind of mentorship then so it sounds like you've had mentors in your career and you know do you mentor people now how important is mentorship do you think to encourage women to get into science to continue on a career in science so I'm excited you know the this idea of the tipping point that you Uh mentioned or you know um, having more people in the area I think is so important because First of all, I didn't look at my mentors, Stuart Schreiber or Peter Durvin, and think I should be just like them because I couldn't, right? But if you only have a few women, people can look at you and say, I can't be like that person, so I can't do this. And I know I've had this 
conversation with, you know, Carolyn Bertozzi and Jennifer Doudna and all of them, you know, these amazing women have said that sometimes they feel like they're unrecruiting women to science. But if there's enough of us and they can see, I don't have to be Jennifer or Carolyn or, you know, I don't have to do it in that way. I can do it in my own way. Then you can encourage people to go forward and pursue and and take advantage of their own abilities and achieve what they want to achieve, not what they, you know, not what Carolyn achieved or Jennifer achieved. Um, talking of Carolyn, there's this moment in her 2022 Nobel Roundtable where, you know, she's the only woman sat at this table with nine men. And apart from the, the chair, um, a lady called Zenab Badawi, and she asked Carolyn, you know, are you going to use your enhanced presence now to advocate for women in science? And Carolyn, she kind of totally spins the question on its head and says, well, actually, that's a much better question for the nine men around the table because they have nine times more weight than I do. And I thought that's such a, a great point. It's about, you know, what men can do as well to help promote this effort. So, I don't know, do you have thoughts on that? What can men do to help here as well? I think it's, I think, yeah, I, I thought that was, I saw that round table too and thought that was such a great moment. And Carolyn is uh, such a great advocate for the field because she, because she causes people to think in that way. So, uh, you know, it's not just, women are also, you know, ingrained in society. We all have our prejudices. And I think that it's really good to think about how you are treating the other people and ask, you know, if I change names, you know, do I have a different approach to it? And so I always tell people, for example, when you're writing letters of recommendation, think about like, okay, who do I think this person is like? Um, If they're female, look at them a male letter or vice versa, and then ask, am I using the same adjectives? Am I describing them in the same way? If I'm not, you've got to change how you're doing it. And um, I, and that's just at the letter version, but I think that, you know, you can do that in other, it, you know, am I giving people the same opportunities? Am I putting people that, you know, the same people forward? And also, if I'm asking somebody to do something, right, would I ask a male colleague to do that, right? Like, would I ask somebody, could you take notes at this meeting, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think there's, you know, having a three-year-old daughter, I want her to grow up not knowing that she's not going to have equal opportunities to do whatever it is she wants to do. So I really... You know, thank you for the work that you do and how you promote this because, you know, I really hope we are going in the right direction. Have I can do whatever I can do to help as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> and, you know, you spoke about this book, Lessons in Chemistry. I have really enjoyed reading that from, you know, the perspective of what it was like for a woman in science back in the, the 50s and 60s. And even how, you know, that book, how the women are to the women in it as well was I'd never really thought about about that like 
how did you find it as a as a woman kind of coming through chemistry? When I was a grad student, I, I don't think Stuart even knew this, but I ended up in this lab where I was the only uh, female graduate student up there. And, you know, they just, they had the P file, which was the porn file, and they would just speak openly about, you know, women and not good terms in it. I I guess at the time, I just thought I had to put up with it to move forward. I mean, I never talked to my advisor about it at all. And I've had other things like that happen to me. You know, I've I've been, you know, you're waiting to give a talk and someone comes up to you and asks you, you know, where they should serve the food or something as though you were like providing support to the event. It, yeah. So I think it, it happens. It, it's not easy. And I was, I, I talk to a lot of my female colleagues and they have those sorts of instances where you just, you know, feel like you're not being taken as seriously or you're not being, um, given the same opportunities. I mean, the, porn thing that was like very um very blatant a lot of things that happen now are more subtle yeah i think talking about it is the is important right if we don't speak about it it's quite hard to address and i think things like podcasts being able to you know talk about those openly really helps because you know it's not just about you know women having to say you know that's not acceptable i think for me now, if I see something, like I want to call it out, like if I see a conference and there's not an equal amount of male and female speakers, I just straight say, no, I'm not going there. It's Yeah, that's great. I, I certainly have sent messages to people saying, you need to invite more, or I can't recommend this conference to my students because you don't have any women speakers. And then they'll, or you have too few and then, you know, the the disadvantage of that is I'm not saying, please invite me to speak at this conference. That's that's sometimes the subtext that people think. So yeah. then I, then they would immediately invite me. But that's not really what I'm yeah. trying to say. So there's a there's some really good sites. Uh, Diversify Chemistry is a great site. If people are looking for speakers, you know, I think just even reaching out to other people in the field and saying, can you make suggestions? There's so many great people. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not just women. It's anybody who's been underrepresented yeah. in science. We need to make that effort. You know, we've come much further with female faculty than we have in other aspects of making our science better by by hearing a lot of different voices. Yeah, that's a great point, Laura. Um. So we are kind of coming towards the end of the, the podcast, Laura, but I do want to ask you what you do in your spare time. If you have <laughs> spare time, I know you're so busy. So, I mean, you kind of spoke that you do some rowing, but yeah. Yeah, I like, um, I I mean, I like nature things. I, I work out a lot, but I also really like art. So uh -huh. I do like visiting and seeing different kinds of, art, you know, whether it's um, 
you know, things that people are just making that are not officially artists or um, museum, you know, quality yeah. art. So I, I like art a lot. Yeah. And I ask this question to quite a lot of the guests on the podcast. What motivates you? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure there's one thing that motivates me. So you mean science-wise? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I so I love problems where you feel like you're on the steep part of the learning curve. That's actually why I love uh, studying carbohydrates. So I love being able to just like where there's not very much known and then you can um, learn something new and carry it around with you. That That's a really exciting part. But the other part is doing it with other people. So you mentioned um, collaboration and it's, you know, one of the most exciting things about um, being a faculty member is we get to see people when they just start out and then you get to see them at the end of their PhD and it's it's just so cool to watch their evolution and then they go off and do great things in industry or academia or wherever they go and then just seeing how you know that education that they had um, allows them to spread their wings and do new things that's also a really exciting part. Um, and then I guess collaboration with my colleagues is just um, so much fun to to sort of show other people how, you know, you can use chemistry to glimpse the world in different ways. Um, so I don't know. those. That's not one answer. Yeah, I don't think there ever is one answer to that. <laughs> to it's a great yeah. answer. I got to meet some of your students. I was at the Gordon Conference last year and got to meet some of your students and speaking to them, they were so enthusiastic about what they do. And, you know, they, they told me about the group and it just sounded so fantastic. And to actually be here and see it and speak to you, like I can see, I can see why. So, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Oh, yeah, they're they're amazing. You know, if you ever feel... Um, if you ever feel down, just go down and talk to the great people that you get to work with. That's such a privilege um, to be a faculty member and be able to interact <laughs> with these amazing people. Um, I did actually bring you a gift. I want to see if you can guess what it is. It has a, I'll give you some clues to what it is. It has a sugary coat, a chocolate bilayer, and a proteiny core. I've heard you use it as an analogy for something before. I think um, this is an analogy. I think Carol, it's used. I've used it, yeah. and um, yes, it sounds like a delicious peanut M M&M. and M. It is. It is, and it actually is a peanut butter M M&M, and M. So they kind of made the, the core more fluid now, which maybe is even better for the analogy. So. Yeah, more like the cytoplasm. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Laura, so this is Back of the Napkin, and part of what uh, happens after each episode is each guest kind of leaves their little scribbling, something that's personal to them. We've had some really great napkin drawers, Michelle Arkin and Amy Ripka. I'll have to show you your 
kind of maybe give them a run for their money with what you would like to to detail but um after we finish recording i'll pass you on these napkins and let you kind of go free reign on what you'd like to to leave as a memento for your time on this episode wow but before we close how can people reach out how can people follow what you and the group are, are doing um so we do post on twitter uh-huh. which is now called another thing and um and I think uh, we have some new things out on BioArchive that I'm really excited about. Yeah, what are they? So we uh, have been um, decorating uh, antigens, like tumor antigens, yeah. in carbohydrate coats to try to make new, a new kind of cancer vaccine. Wow. And so we have some, I think, exciting results on that front. And these are on BioArchive now? Yeah. Okay, we'll link in we'll link in the uh, in the oh, show great. notes to those. Yeah, I'm excited to read that. Yeah, <laughs> sounds great. Thanks so much, Laura. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for listening to this episode of Back of the Napkin. To hear more stories of innovation and discovery just like this, subscribe to Back of the Napkin on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends, colleagues, or lab mates. Back of the Napkin is made possible by Biotechnique where we believe that purposeful innovation leads to better answers. Biotechnic is a global developer, manufacturer, and supplier of high-quality reagents, analytical instruments, and precision diagnostics. You can learn more about Biotechnic and our brands like R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tocris Bioscience, Protein Simple, Advanced Cell Diagnostics, exosome diagnostics, a surgeon and lunophore by visiting www.bio-technique.com. Thank you.